This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, and I'd like to welcome you to episode 388 of the FCPA Compliance Report. The FCPA Compliance Report is sponsored by my latest book, The Complete Compliance Handbook. The Complete Compliance Handbook is a one-volume compendium of the best practices based upon the 10 hallmarks of an effective compliance program, bookended by a chapter on 31 days to a more effective compliance program and one month to fully operationalizing your compliance program. If you need a one-volume compendium of the best information about operationalizing your compliance program, this is the book for you. It incorporates the 2017 Evaluation of Corporate Compliance Programs document released by the Department of Justice and the new FCPA Corporate Enforcement Policy released in late November 2017. You can purchase a copy on Amazon.com or if you'd like an autographed copy, shoot me an email at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. You can also check it out on my website, the FCPACompliancereport.com. Today I have with me John Warren and Amy McNeil from the ACFE. And we're going to talk about the ACFE Report to the Nations. It's their annual fraud report, which has lots of great information, and we're going to really focus on the anti-corruption components of the fraud report. I think you'll find it a fascinating uh, exploration of fraud in all its forms and how you can use this information for your anti-corruption compliance program going forward. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist. The FCPA Compliance Report is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back for another episode. And today, uh, you're in for a real treat because I have John Warren, the Vice President and General Counsel of the Association of Certified Fraud Examiners, that's ACFE, ACFE. and I'm joined by Andy McNeil, a Director of Research at ACFE. And we're here to talk about the ACFE 2018 Report to the Nations, the Global Study on Occupational Fraud and Abuse. So, uh, Andy and John, thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me today. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. So, uh, I was wondering if you guys, uh, as you know, most of my my people, uh, my listeners, come from the anti-corruption compliance world. So, I was wondering if you might start off by telling us uh, what ACFE is and then move directly into what is the report to the nations. Sure. The ACFE, the Association of Certified Fraud Examiners, is a professional association um, that focuses really on training, education, and resources as well as certification for um, those who deal with fraud, uh, protecting against fraud, preventing, um, investigating, and responding to frauds after they occur as well. Um, We've got 80 a little over 80,000 members all over the world, and we administer the Certified Fraud Examiner credential. Um, and the w- corruption 
landscape certainly overlaps with a lot of what we do. Um, we have a lot of information about anti-bribery, anti-corruption programs, and a lot of members that focus specifically on that realm of fraud. And so um, every two years, as part of our efforts, we create this report to the nations. Um, the newest one was just released a few months ago, and that's what we'll be talking about today. But that's a study we conduct that really looks at the costs, the methods, the victims and perpetrators of occupational fraud, which we define as um, frauds that are perpetrated against organizations by the people that work there. So that includes corruption um, within that umbrella. And our study really gives us an analysis of global trends and some good benchmarking information for organizations on how to prevent detect against fraud. So you guys actually have your own podcast, and you did a podcast on the Report to the Nations, which I had the uh, uh, good fortune to listen to before uh, this podcast. And I think it was you, John, uh, but said something that really struck me, which was the consistency of your findings really over the life of the report. That th- there's obviously some variation, but you're con- you're seeing the cons- uh, consistently seeing uh, the same red flags sort of the same actions and the same body of information. And that consistency over the number of reports has really led you guys to to thinking that there's some validity in that data. Would that be a fair statement? Yeah, I think that's uh, fair to say. We started started doing this. I've been around with the ACFE for about 22, 23 years, and we started doing it in 1996, uh, the survey. And really, it's kind of interesting. We, we didn't set out to be a um, research organization, but we did have a lot of members who were focused on occupational fraud, and we would get questions all the time about, you know, well, what are, what are, what do companies lose to this? What are the basic pieces of information you would expect to have about how these crimes worked? And, and there just wasn't anything out there. So we started surveying members and asking them, just give us one case you've looked at. And tell us about the person who committed it. We don't want to know any names. We don't ask for company names or individuals, but just tell us how it was committed, uh, where they worked, what their job title was, you know, what was the victim, what kind of victim was it, and um, what happened after the case was detected, how was it detected, just basic information. And we compiled it in the uh, original report. And um, that was done in 96. And then beginning in 2002, we decided to update it. And from that point forward, we've done it every two years. So we're on our 10th version of the report now. And one of the really striking things is that um, year after year, you get the same results, which in a sense is a little boring for our marketing people who try to find new ways to spin the data we're pulling. But we get really excited about it, Andy and I do, because we feel like after we've had, we've looked at collectively now well over 10,000 cases. And after so many cases where you see the same trends in terms of the distribution of perpetrators, the types of victims, you begin to feel like, well, this is hard data that we can really rely on. So we know, for instance, that um, the higher up fraud offenders go on the org chart, the larger losses are going to tend to be. We know that small victims are disproportionately or uh, victimized. They suffer much larger losses uh, per scheme than than larger counterparts. Um, we have a good feel for the ways in which behavioral indicators are show up in these fraud cases. That's very consistent year over year. So anybody reading the study and looking at the data in there is going to get um, what we believe is a pretty pretty um, 
rock solid view of how fraud is going to um, af- affect a typical organization. Um, one thing I do want to point out, um, because there's sometimes some misconception about that, we're not looking at all the fraud within a given organization. What makes our, because that's kind of impossible to understand because fraud lasts for a long period of time. And so at any given point, you might be subject to frauds you don't know about. We look at specific cases. So when we're talking about the age of a perpetrator or the number of a perpetrator, that the number of perpetrators or the size of the loss or whatever, that's being reported by the CFEs who investigated the case. So it's, it's hard factual data. It's not opinion. It's not guessing. Um, so this is really reflective of the way frauds occur within organizations. We think it's a really good way um, to, to look at the problem, understand the problem. So if I could build on a couple of the key findings that I thought were particularly uh, significant for the anti-corruption compliance practitioner, you mentioned that if the uh, higher up in an organization, the fraud went, the um, perhaps uh, higher losses occurred. But there were a couple of other things. Uh, one was, I uh, was very uh, disheartened to see that corruption was the most common scheme across every or in every global region. And the second one was uh, that median losses are far greater when fraudsters collude. And typically, in, at least in a uh, corruption case, you're going to have more than one fraudster uh, involved simply because uh, the number of people needed to, to pull off or perpetrate the fraud are, are more. So um, really, any thoughts on those two points? Um, yeah, just to expand, when you mentioned that corruption is the most common scheme across every region, it is. And we looked at 11 different categories of um, occupational fraud, and, and we broke it down into geographic regions. And, and every single one, corruption came out on top. Um, but the frequency did vary quite a bit between those regions. And it's probably not too surprising. We see that in other studies as well, like the Transparency International. Um, we had the greatest percentage of cases in our study were um, in Southern Asia and in Eastern Europe and Western Central Asia. They were up in the 60% of cases um, involved corruption um, area. And then on the flip side, we had a lower over in the U.S. We had about 30% of the cases in the U.S. involved corruption and a, a little over a third in Western Europe as well. So even though they came out on top, there was quite a very variation regionally. Um, and, and as I mentioned, that's kind of in line with what we see from other studies as well. And then the other option, yeah, and then, and, I'm sorry, John, go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. I was going to jump in. In terms of the collusion, you mentioned that losses are greater when fraudsters collude. And yeah, that's, that's absolutely true. We looked at, it's one of the studies or one of the things we focus on. We try to get a um, understanding of various factors about the people who commit the crimes. But one of the key questions is how many people were involved because um, it can really impact the way fraud occurs. And when we looked at this, about 52% of cases involved only one perpetrator. So were single person frauds. The median loss in those was $74,000 per fraud scheme. If you added a second perpetrator, you go to two perpetrators, the median loss jumps to $150,000 per scheme, so more than doubles. If you go to three or more, now you're up to about $340,000, so more than doubles again. So every time you're adding uh, a person to the fraud, you're increasing the losses in that fraud. About half are single person, about half are collusive, but the collusive ones are much more costly. And um, it it basically gets down, well, there are a number of reasons, but the, the key thing is when you think about internal controls 
and the ways in which we try to prevent fraud, and you boil them all down, we're really talking about, are we verifying what someone else did, right? Do we have independent checks and verification on invoices or purchase orders or, you know, whatever, whatever kind of transaction we're dealing with? And when you've got two or more people conspiring, it gives you the ability to evade those controls. Like if the guy who's supposed to be checking my work or verifying my work is in on it with me, now the company is really vulnerable because the person they're relying on to catch potential fraud is a part of the fraud themselves. So that becomes um, what makes these cases especially hard to detect and what makes them um, so successful. You know, it's essentially collaboration. Like generally we want people in our organization collaborating and working together and that's a good thing. When you're in the middle of a fraud scheme, it turns out to be a very, very bad thing. And it, it gives, not only are they more effective at doing it, but they've got an incentive to steal more because, you know, obviously if, I, if I'm committing a fraud by myself and I steal $100,000, I get to keep 100000 If I bring Andy into the scheme with me and we steal $100,000, I've just seen my profits cut in half. So now Andy and I would have to steal 200000 to make myself whole. So not only are we going to be probably better at committing fraud, but we're going to have a motive or an incentive to steal more because we got more mouths to feed in the scheme. So there's a lot of things that go into it, but it, it really is interesting. The more people you have involved, the more your losses really skyrocket. So one of the things that uh, really struck me was the um, uh, top red flags that you identified in corruption cases. And I really wanted to ask, do the red flags in corruption cases differ from the red flags that you've identified in other types of fraud? And is there a correlation or should the anti-compliance, excuse me, anti-corruption compliance practitioner be looking for something different than a more traditional anti-fraud compliance practitioner? Yeah, um, I'll, I'll, touch on that really briefly. So yeah, we have a, uh, we broke down a lot of information about corruption cases. And as you said, one of the things we looked at were the, the top red flags in these cases. And when we're saying there are a number of different ways to look at red flags. And what I'm talking about here is what we call behavioral red flags. So when a person is engaging in fraudulent conduct, or um, in this case, corrupt conduct within an organization, they're typically going to um, give off some behavioral signs. And, and through um, prior literature and prior research, we've identified 17 common behavioral red flags. So when we do our survey, we ask the people who investigated the crime, did the perpetrator display any of these characteristics before the fraud was caught? And that before is really important because what we're trying to determine is if somebody had understood what to look for, were there warning signs? And so in 85% of cases, at least one red behavioral red flag was observed before the fraud was caught. And in 50% of cases, two or more were observed. So these are very common is the first thing to take from this. In terms of the most common in corruption cases, uh, the top four were uh, living beyond their means. Basically, they're you know, living a lifestyle that you can't explain by their uh, regular salary or compensation structure. That was in about 43% of cases. Uh, in 34% of cases, they had an unusually close association with a vendor or a customer. That's not surprising at all for corruption cases. We would expect that. In about 23%, they had financial difficulties. 
and in about 21%, they ha- were perceived to be what we call wheeler-dealer attitude, was they were just perceived to be generally unscrupulous. Uh, now, those aren't terribly surprising, but what, you, what we look at in this case is um, there are six common flags that stand out across all cases, but the ones that jump out in corruption are the unusually close association, obviously, with the vendor and the wheeler-dealer attitude, but also having strong control issues, people who are unwilling to share duties, unwilling to let anybody see what they're working on. That's usually because they're involved in something um, nefarious that are trying to cover up. They're keeping a second set of books or whatever. And then being unusually irritable or suspicious or defensive, those were more common in corruption cases than in your standard body of occupational fraud cases. And so it lends itself to um, an understanding of maybe some of the behavioral traits of people involved in these crimes. And the idea being that, you know, if we, if we train our managers or our auditors or, or people in our HR department or whatever to be aware of these things, maybe we spot a fraud or a corruption case a little sooner. Like everybody who's irritable isn't committing fraud, obviously. These aren't, these aren't proof points necessarily, but they're indicators. They're things that maybe ought to raise our suspicions just a little bit. And, you know, a lot of work is being done in this area already in, in um, sort of the high-tech end of the anti-fraud field and in, in terms of like sentiment analysis and things like that. Andy's, Andy's a little more versed in that stuff than I am. She maybe could talk to that a little bit. So, yeah, um, uh, sure. I wanted to really uh, lead into to that kind of area of inquiry around some of these um, uh, traditional behavioral risk detection or prevention techniques or, and or the structural solutions that we tend to see in anti-corruption compliance programs. What, uh, what does all this uh, suggest to you? Sure. So interestingly, um, our data shows that 50% of corruption cases are detected by TIP. And that's actually more than um, in the general body of occupational frauds by, by a little bit. Um, so we've got half of cases that involve corruption being brought up, um, being brought to light by somebody who tipped off management. And that's a pretty reactive way to detect fraud. I mean, certainly we're hoping that organizations have hotlines and they're educating their employees and they're cultivating tips and creating a culture that, that speak up. Um, mentality is very, very uh, encouraged in, but it's still rather reactive, right? And so I think, um, what we can really take from the data is some, some p- potential for, uh, additional proactive measures that organizations can take. Um, part of our research, we looked at 18 different anti-fraud controls that were, um, either in place or not in place at the victim organizations. And part of the reason we do that is there's a lot of push to really figure out um, sort of ROI metrics on different controls, right? And that's hard when you're talking about fraud. It's hard to measure how much fraud or corruption are we preventing with this control. But um, we, we have some data that can really give practitioners some, inform, you know, some really powerful um, selling points on some of these. And two of the ones that really speak both to fraud in general, but, but certainly to corruption and, and those behavioral red flags that we were just talking about. Um, when we look at organizations that are using proactive data monitoring and analysis um, techniques, where they're actually going in and looking into the data, whether it's the structured data, the transactions, the numbers, or the unstructured data, the emails and 
um, IMs and, and um, other sorts of textual data and using that sentiment analysis that John just talked about. Um, organizations that are doing proactive searches, um, our, our data shows that they have a 58% smaller loss to fraud when they actually experience fraud. So that's pretty significant. They're stopping the frauds a lot more quickly and they're losing a lot less than their counterparts that are not proactively using their data. The counterparts that are waiting for tips right, are using more passive methods to fight fraud. So there's, there's a lot of potential there for practitioners in terms of are we considering these behavioral red flags when we design our anti-corruption programs and what are we doing with them? Are we training employees to help us cultivate those tips? And then even further, are we building models in our data analytics programs around those? Um, another control that was really powerful in terms of um, association with lower fraud losses and quicker detection is surprise audits. And I think that really speaks to corruption uh, schemes as well. When you've got the audit team um, or compliance team going in and checking on a random basis as opposed to just relying on the typical um, assurance functions, the, you know, what did we do last time and, and what areas do we usually look at? And yes, it's a risk-based approach, but we're still only using the same methodology that we typically use so people know what to expect. If you do it more on a surprise basis where you incorporate unexpected, unanticipated timing or procedures or questions into your fraud detection measures, then, um, then that really sets the organization up to be more successful in fighting fraud. So, so much in our world, in the anti-fraud world, is about um, being proactive. I mean, prevention is better than detection by miles, right? We talk about this in the report that by the time the fraud, by the time the money's left the company, it's pretty much gone. Yeah, you know, the recovery rate is pretty small. So detecting it after the fact is okay. Preventing it is much better. But um, the these frauds tend to last for months before they're caught. So if you're not going to prevent it, the more you can do to detect it earlier, the the, earl, the lower your losses are going to be. Fraudsters, and and that includes people engaged in corruption, typically smart start small. They test the waters. They um, see if they're going to get caught, and they get bolder the longer these schemes go on. So your losses really tend to rise toward the end of the curve before before the fraud is caught. So being proactive, like Andy said, you know, encouraging people to make tips conducting surprise audits, doing proactive testing, you know, like understanding what, what a, a fraud might look like on the books and, and testing for that just as a routine measure rather than you know, waiting for somebody to say, hey, you know, something, something looks wrong. Those are ways to catch it earlier and really minimize your losses. It's critically important. And with, along with that, you know, when we talk about building on these behavioral red flags, and I mentioned sentiment analysis, well, when you look at these corruption schemes and you're seeing the propensity for the sort of wheeler-dealer unscrupulous attitudes or the um, defensiveness or irritability around these fraudsters, is that something that you can build into um, different types of, of searches that you're doing? Maybe, you know, it's that fine line between obviously not 
fostering a feeling that Big Brother is watching, but there's a lot of organizations out that are starting to, to try this in terms of just monitoring overall sentiments in different sectors or pockets of their organization. If they have sales teams that are under significant pressure, maybe they're watching the body of communications within that group rather than any one individual's communications and just seeing, are we seeing more keywords or messaging that indicates that the pressure there might be pushing them to engage in corrupt practices? So, guys, uh, unfortunately, we're near the end of our time, but uh, I was wondering if uh, someone wanted uh, more information on the report to the nations, uh, how could they find out about it? Uh, sure, absolutely. Well, the easiest way is just to go to um, the report to the nations website. That's at acfe.com slash RTTN stands for Report to the Nations. So acfe.com slash RTTN, and they can download the report, the charts and graphs. We've got some infographics up there that people can use to take to their management or to their clients, um, one specifically on corruption that can be really, really helpful in this regard. And, and just to follow up on that, we, this is a free resource. We publish it as public service, so anybody is encouraged to go Pull it up, download it, print up as many copies as you want, give it to your clients, give it to your managers, give it to whoever. We're trying to make this a tool that anti-fraud practitioners and, and anti-corruption practitioners can use to just educate people about what the risks are. So, so please, you know, feel free, make use of it. That's what it's up there for. So let me take that a thought a step further, John, because I got a copy of this report because I subscribe to the Fraud Magazine, which is put out by the ACFE. And if you're listening to this podcast and you do not subscribe to this magazine, you need to do so. If you're an anti-corruption compliance practitioner, there's going to be several articles in each um, issue that apply directly to you. And the concepts that uh, I've read about in the magazine really will give you pause to improve your uh, overall anti-corruption compliance program. So uh, I wanted to give that shout out to the magazine as well. I've been visiting with uh, Andy McNeil and John Warren, uh, both from the ACFE. Guys, uh, thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me, and I'm sure we will be continuing this conversation. Thanks so Thanks, much. Tom. Thanks for having us. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. If you have any questions, you can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. I hope you've enjoyed this episode, and if you've listened to it on iTunes, I would greatly appreciate it if you would rate our podcast, as it would help in our rankings and help get the word out to those who may not have heard of the oldest report in the compliance room. Thank you again for listening. I hope you'll join us again next week for another episode. The FCPA Compliance Report is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.